Welcome to episode 11. You are listening to Massage Matters podcast, part of the Physio Matters Network. Hi everyone, it's Matt here and thanks for joining us once again for another episode. Now, before I let Anna-Maria jump in and introduce the episode and our fantastic guest for this week, I just wanted to draw your attention to something that I thought would be kind of handy for actually all therapists, uh, particularly those based in the UK, uh, looking at the horizon and hopefully seeing the end of lockdown coming. So on the 2nd of March at 6pm GMT, there is a free 30-minute webinar uh, titled Go Back to Business Hygiene Ready, aimed specifically at therapists of uh, all varieties, all flavours, who hopefully will be going back to work imminently. It's being presented by Physio Supplies Limited, and Alex Nesbitt is bringing in Ibrahim Saman, the CEO of an Australian clinical hygiene brand known as Purifas. Now, Ibrahim is a physiotherapist in the public and private Australian allied health sector uh, and is a leader in clinical hygiene and essentially will be discussing uh, why the most popular methods used by therapists to maintain clinical hygiene uh, perhaps could be improved um, and will be discussing uh, what he sees as the sort of essential steps for best practice with a view that this will help build consumer confidence in your clinic for when you reopen. In order to sign up, then if you go to tinyurl.com forward slash physio supplies that's t-i-n-y-u-r-l dot com forward slash p-h-y-s-i-o-s-u-p-p-l-i-e-s so tinyurl.com forward slash physio supplies that'll take you through to a zoom webinar sign up link uh, and you can put your details in there and once again that is on march the 2nd at 6 p.m gmt for a webinar on clinical hygiene. Right, thanks very much for uh, listening and I'll hand over to Anna Maria on with the show. Me, Anna Maria Mazzieri, Matt Scarsbrook and Becky Demo Horton are the Massage Collective, a group created to provide the link between traditional massage therapists and evidence-based practice. To join with our discussions today, we have invited Jamie Johnston. Jamie is a massage therapist from Canada. And for those of you who are not aware of Jamie's work, Jamie is the creator of the Massage Therapist Development Center, which is an online collaborative blog dedicated to educate therapists on a more modern, evidence-based approach to practice. Why we have invited Jamie? We have invited Jamie because if you if you open the Massage Therapist Development Center about page, you will see there the biggest headline saying massage therapy does not get the respect it deserves. And that feels very much what we want to communicate. That feels very much what we are about. So we bring you Jamie Johnson. Welcome, Jamie. Uh, great. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I, I love what you what uh, you're doing as a group and what the podcast is doing. So I'm honored 
to be here. Absolutely honored that you'd have me on. Um, so my background is before I became a massage therapist, I was an industrial first aid attendant at a sawmill uh, in another town where I live. Um, so, you know, for six years spent... Canada, right? You're still yep. from Canada. Yeah, on, on Vancouver Island. Uh, so I live about three hours away from where I worked in the mill. Um, so it was you know, constantly working on shift with people who were getting injured uh, in the workplace and dealing with workplace injuries and, and that sort of stuff. And then uh, once I started doing that, I became a volunteer firefighter in that town. And then the mill eventually shut down and I decided it was time to go back to school and learn how to do something. And I was debating going into nursing because I enjoyed the, the first date and the medical end of things. And then I did some aptitude testing and the gentleman who did the aptitude testing came back and said, hey, actually, it shows that massage therapy would be a good choice for you. And I was would have never, ever even considered that as a career. I didn't think it was a career, to be honest. I had never had a massage. And I started looking into it. And when I saw that I could work with sports teams, I was like, OK, that's what I'm doing. Uh, and I think that was in like June and September 1st, I was in school. Uh, so I moved to the town where the school is and I uh, started going back to school. And then I started volunteering with the fire department here locally again. Um, and then when I was in school uh, in our second term, because I knew I wanted to work in sport, I approached one of our local junior A hockey teams because uh, hockey is my favorite sport, you know, being Canadian and all. Uh, so I reached out to them and I started volunteering with them. Uh, so I managed as a student to start volunteering with them and I spent seven years with the team. Um, then graduated in 2010, uh, later in 2011 as I was developing my practice. So I was still working with the hockey team and I got hired on as a dispatcher with one of the local fire, fire departments and I was still volunteering. And then a couple of years ago I got hired on as a career firefighter uh, with one of the local fire departments here. So still working in sport, working as a firefighter, uh, still working as a massage therapist. And I, I managed to branch out and start teaching first aid and first responder courses to massage therapists because that's a requirement here that we all have to be licensed in first aid. Um, and what was it, five years ago, I got hired on with Hockey Canada and I kind of travel around with them a couple times a year in the women's program, uh, working as a massage therapist with them. Uh, so that's sort of career-wise where where I've come from. Um, and as far as the Massage Therapist Development Center, um, it really stemmed from a conversation with a fellow by the name of John Goodman, who developed a site called the Personal Trainer Development Center. Um, so John and I had a conversation and, and I was thinking about starting blogging and that kind of stuff. And I said, uh, you know, we're having the conversation. I said, I was new in my practice and I was like, I just want to start blogging to get some people coming in. And he said, well, have you ever thought of doing the Massage Therapist Development Center? And I said, well, yeah, but that's like, I'm still new. That's down the road. And he goes, oh, fuck that. That's what you're doing. You're... And so he sent me on the road um, and just, you know, eventually started learning how to write articles and looking at research and stuff like that and have built it up. And um, hopefully it's making a difference. I, I thought my mom was the only one who read it. So I'm happy you guys are. <laughs> it's uh, your mom and Anna now. No, no it's clearly <laughs> way better than that. And, and I've got to jump in as well that clearly a background in dispatching makes you an awesome massage therapist. So just <laughs> shout out for the, I used to be an ambulance dispatcher. So oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you, clearly you we make the best massage therapist. You have to communicate very quickly when you're a dispatcher. So. Although I do have to question what kind of aptitude test thought the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it was funny because looking at it, because I, I didn't have any college background. All I had was high school 
And one of the things that he said is, he's, he goes, you've got the intelligence that if you want to go to school to be a nurse, you can, but your aptitude testing shows that you're going to get really frustrated with four years of school. So you might want to look at something that's more of a two-year program. And our, at the time, our program was a 3,000-hour program, so it was about two and a half years. Um, and so just when I started looking at it and was like, I can work in sport, that's where I'm going. That's, that's really, sorry, Matt, that's really interesting as well, because we, we talk about that a lot um on the pod or we've talked about it a bit on the podcast about um so we call it something slightly different in this country we refer to it as vocational training so it's um rather than going to to university or college to do something it's kind of um a more practical learning experience and it can be built around people with careers and families and so on and and we think that gives a real richness to the profession because you get those people like you say that probably just wouldn't enjoy four years of college or or a university type education um or for whatever reason they they don't have that option in their life and and you get these whole broad spectrum of different personalities and backgrounds and i think that gives a real richness to the profession so it's kind of interesting to hear that that's what was picked up for you yeah yeah it was uh it was it was it was funny because when you look when he presented it to me, I was like, what? That's that's a profession. I was like, oh, okay. Well, so this is what I find quite interesting. So obviously, again, in the UK, so we've got um, a qualification uh, called sport therapy, which obviously brings that kind of, um, oh, well, I want to work in sport. That sounds like a really good uh, sort of route in for me. Um, and I suppose a lot of people might become sports, I'm, I'm assuming here actually, but a lot of people might become sports therapists without having received massage directly but they want to be involved in sports and they'll have an idea about the the, the sort of the the, the back the back office team like the rehab side of things all that kind of thing but it must be quite unusual to become a massage therapist which by definition requires getting hands-on with people if you don't necessarily know whether you like that or not yourself yeah because like i said i had never had a massage and the school here they make you come and do like an introductory weekend course before you're allowed to actually enroll in school. And I think part of that is is not only to see if you like it, but the instructors who teach it are also instructors at the school. And and I think partially it's to kind of weed out some creepy people that might be yeah. coming to that. take the course. Yeah, so, which is great. Uh, and hopefully that's continually happening. We, but we yeah, we do that, Jamie. Actually the introductory course for us is like you say, it's a little bit of an interview for both parties and the times that people that wanted to join had a plenty of discussion with them on the phone they come into the introductory course and actually they're not this well they, they, they finished and say actually we don't like i don't like touching yeah. and i feel very uncomfortable touching people but they would not know until you know they start but they might like all the other all the other part, the, 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 the exercise based, so that they go and do a different type of course. But people might be interested in the care package of the training course, but actually not touching. So it's not, it's not unusual. Yeah. Yeah, but fortunately, I liked it, so I decided to go ahead. Well, yes, you stayed, which, which, is, which is good for us, because uh, <laughs> we've got someone to talk to on the podcast. Um, <laughs> so... So let's jump into the the massage development, uh, the massage service development center then, because there's, I mean, first of all, so I, I'm I'm on your mailing list, so I I, I read all of you. So so it's not just your mum. Oh great, thanks, man. I am 
I am reading the blogs and stuff that are going up and, and obviously um, you've got uh, sort of work with with people like ben ben cormack who's produced some stuff for, for the site as well which is which is ace and and it's, it's really nice going through and reading all the all the uh, all the different blogs that are put up and and so it's highly recommended uh for, for people to go out and and read that but can i be really picky and just ask a couple of questions because i'm really intrigued on some of the thinking so well, I mean on 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 the site you've got as a as a header as, as you open up the site you've got transforming the perception of massage therapy yeah. So what what I'm intrigued uh, to know is, from a, I, I guess Canada North American perspective, what is the perception of massage therapy? Um, because there, I mean we have a perception in the UK, and I suspect that there's probably a lot of overlap there. But what is the perception at the moment? And also, where do you see what is the perception you would like it to be? Where do you see that evolving to? Yeah, uh, I think th I think the perception varies across North America because you've got in in Canada we've got five regulated provinces and and they're called regulated provinces because we we fall under government regulation. We're allowed to give treatment and bill insurance companies. Um, you know, it's and and we're pushing to be more regulated across every province. But then you've got you know where I went to school and did a three thousand hour program in different parts of the country. You can go do a 250 hour program and you're considered a massage therapist, but you're not as part of the regulated profession. So there's a there's a broad spectrum of, if I'm standing in the room, and, and it's not to say that I'm better than anybody else, but if I'm standing in the room and I did a 3000 hour program and I'm next to somebody who did a 250 hour program, are we doing the same thing? Mm -hmm. and, and I think the perception from the public is that they don't really know that there's a difference. And we, we and and it's not that there's anything wrong with somebody who did a 250 hour program i'm sure they're great at what they do but if we're going to bring the profession up we need to bring everybody up that's doing the same amount of hours that's that's agreed that they're in you know a regulated province that that we're all kind of coming to the same standard and i don't think the profession understands that there's a difference there and i also think that it's it's quite often talked about that we're at the bottom of the totem pole as far as healthcare goes because we've got chiros and physios and, and massager are down at the bottom and and you talk to patients that are like well my physio told to come and see told me to come and see you and they told me that I need this and this done but don't do this and I'm like I don't care what they said <laughs> you know because they're coming in and they're like well this person who's considered higher than you said yeah. that this is what should get done um, and the reality is in British Columbia, where I live, the only difference um, in, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, in our scope of practice with physios is that they can do electrical modalities and we can't. Wow. Okay. That's the only difference in our scope. So, so does, that mean, does that mean in your province you can do neurological testing so you can yeah. work with, oh, right. Okay, cool. So yeah. that is out of so just for your info that is out of scope uh, for us as practitioners in the UK even at the the le what we call the level five so the highest sort of non academic qualification yeah. yeah yeah and I mean don't get me wrong like I I love chiros and physios and and they definitely went and went to universities and things like that and learned what they do um, but I I think we I think as massage therapists we have an edge because we get to spend a lot more time with people and I think that. I think that plays into what we do very well. So when we talk about where I would like to see the perception of the profession go is that we are healthcare professionals and we are 
you know, helping people in that way. It's not, it's not just that they're coming in to get a relaxation massage. And there's nothing wrong with a relaxation massage. People need that on a regular basis. And as long as it's clinically reasoned. Yeah, and, and it's beneficial. Um, but we can do more than just a relaxation massage. We can do exercise with people. We can do tissue loading. We can do testing. We can do all those things. And we get to spend an, a longer amount of time with people, which I think it creates more benefit in what we do. Yeah, uh, I think that's... Oh, sorry, go on, Matt. No, no, no. So, uh, I was just going to say, I agree with the amount of time thing. I think it's huge. And I think it's um, probably just going to become more and more obvious um, the more that, that uh, healthcare systems in general start to feel the strain because of the way that different populations are, you know, either growing or aging or um, as a part of both we're growing and we're aging so we have more musculoskeletal issues that sort of creep in over time mm-hmm. but i think the amount of time we spend with people is is going to become even more uh, noticeable uh, yeah yeah and i think it i think it creates a greater benefit for the person like i've been in some different facebook groups and and i've seen people commenting that oh you know i'm telling this person to come back and i think they only need a 45 minute appointment but they want an hour and the way i look at it is but maybe maybe you can get what you need none or get what you need to do in that 45 minutes, but maybe they need that extra 15 because they just need a break from everything else. Maybe it's a mental health break that they're, they're away from the kids for an hour. They're away from work for an hour. They're just, that's their hour to just focus on themselves. So maybe in reality, they need a 60, but we're not giving it to them. But Yes, especially because I think some therapists are still considering the the treatment as as intervention instead of encounter mm-hmm. we need to start uh, moving away from thinking they come to us so that we can just do something we are just an operator well they come to us for that let's say that hour and within the hour there is the 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 interviewing there is um, some manual treatment which is massage there is some exercise and there is some time spent discussing advising and so on and i think once we realize that is the time with us as an encounter that is the beneficial part is therapeutic alliance that it is i think we we cannot move away you know until we think of that i don't think we will ever move away from being the fixer i'm i'm this is just sprung to mind so this might be a, a rabbit hole not even worth going down but is there too long for an individual appointment, for an individual session with a massage therapist, because so so you know I see I see therapists offering sort of ninety minutes or two hour sessions, um, but I, funny enough I saw a post the other day in one of the forums uh, that I was in I can't remember which one now but it was someone basically saying oh, I've got my first two hour appointment to booked tomorrow, um, what do I do? <laughs> like i've run out i'll run out of things to do any advice on what to do and i was sort of thinking well is that actually detrimental to the client then if there isn't necessarily reason i mean if the client was going for just a relaxation massage i mean frankly right now i can't think of anything better than two hours with someone else taking care of me but <laughs> if, it a, if it was one where there was sort of almost a, a clinical reason that the client had approached in the first place i do wonder actually if there's almost too much time you can spend in the environment uh that could be detrimental i think that's up to them oh nice (laughs) and and, i mean personally i i don't like doing 90 minute treatments Mm -hmm. 
because it, it's sort of the same thing. Like, okay, I kind of look and go, I'm going to do this for 45 minutes, then I'm going to do another 45 minutes of this. I just, I don't like it. But if somebody really needs that, who am I to tell them that they shouldn't have that? And there was there was a gentleman that I treated years ago that worked up in the oil patch, and he would once a month come in for a two hour treatment, and he was like, I want you to spend 15 minutes on each arm. I want this on my back, and I was like, Sure, man. And that was his, when he got out of camp, that was his two hours to come in and just chill out and get the maintenance that he needed to then go back to work into the oil field for another month or whatever it was. So it, I think it's up to them. I mean, we can try to interject, but if they if they think they need an hour and a half or a two hour break, who are we to tell them that they shouldn't have that? That's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because I think sometimes we're we're really good at telling people what they need and what they should be doing, and I, that's just you know one example. And funnily enough, it was you know reading through your stuff that kind of brought that to mind. I, I saw that comment in in one of your blogs about you know if somebody asks for a sixty minute treatment, maybe it's because they need a sixty minute appointment you know uh, but we're really good at telling people what they need aren't we and I think yeah. this has always kind of um been there for me with the arguments for and against manual therapy and I kind of think well if if we're honest with a client about what we're doing and, and what manual therapy does who on earth am I to say to you that you can't access this you know that would be like me saying to you you can't go and have a hot bath or you can't put an ice pack on your sorbet or you know <laughs> I don't have that right to say that to somebody as long as I'm being honest about you know what it what the mechanisms are so yeah that's really interesting isn't it maybe just generally we need to get a bit better at listening to what they're asking for and what they feel that would benefit them rather than us telling them what would benefit them. I think this, this starts um, uh, a really interesting conversation that um, is, is where, where, do, where does that end? Where yeah. does client, yeah, sure, for sure. Uh, client centered, where does client preference or client choice end and evidence-based practice begin if the two are not aligned? And, and at what point as a therapist, do you either say, I'm not doing that because it, it doesn't support the evidence base behind what I think you need, in which case you need a different therapist because I'm not working with. Or do you continue working with that person in the way that they want to be worked with, even though you know based on the evidence, which all right is not person-centered by definition, it is a broad stroke, but isn't necessarily the right thing to be doing? Mm -hmm. Well, what about if in a case like that, um, let's just, for argument's sake, say it was somebody who wants an hour and a half and you only think they need an hour. What if you said, okay, well, tell you what, what if the next treatment, because I think you only need this, why don't you come in for an hour and 15 and we'll see what the therapeutic benefit is after an hour and 15. And if they leave and they're like, oh, that actually feels pretty good. It's like, okay, well, next one will make an hour and 15. And then maybe the one after that, you go, let's try an hour and see how things feel after that. Rather than being like, this is what you need. This is what I'm going to tell you. What if we just approach it a little bit differently and, and play into them a little bit to maybe have a bit of a negotiation with them as opposed to us telling them? What Matt raised is really, really interesting. How, how can we, at the moment, with the knowledge we have, align or reconcile clients' preferences with evidence? That brings me a little bit of... Um, um, the project, Coast Health Project, and I uh, was listening to 
Rani from the Close Health Project, she, she was talking on uh, Words Matter from Oliver Thompson. And she said something really fantastic because they, they, they're talking about the, the complexity and the plurality of causation and the complexity of, of, of researching and studying uh, the human experience. And what she said, she said is evidence should be relevant for the clinic and inform uh, by what happens in the clinic instead of just what happens in clinical trials. So at the moment, it's going to be very difficult for us because of our CTs, because of the gold standards of evidence we have now, studies we have now. It's very difficult for us to, to reconcile the two because often clients' preferences might not align with what RCTs tell us, but because the RCTs, some of them have some limitation of or studying, researching certain topics have some limitations. Well, instead, if we make what matters in the clinic being part of the research, yeah. being actually integral part of it, then it's much better aligned. And I think we are moving towards that. I think we're really realizing that the client experience, the client uh, preferences actually are important. Remember. Of course, we know what can be affecting what is not. And sometimes we have to communicate to the client that, you know, we thought that this one was meant effective. Now we know that actually for long term, you know, self-efficacy might be better and so on. But in general, as long as they are aware, as long as there is informed consent, and so, as long as there is a decision-shared process, why not? Yeah, I agree. So move, moving on slightly, if I may. Um, sure. So um, a lot of what you talk about on the um, Massage Therapy Development Centre, and I know something that the three of us use a lot in um, our interactions with clients is a, an exercise-based approach, a movement-based approach. How, what, what made you kind of go in that direction from, you know, is it part of your training as a massage therapist out there in Canada? Or is it, is it a particular interest you had that, that led you to kind of go down that direction? Um, we get a bit of training on therapeutic exercise in college when we go through the program. Um, I wouldn't say at the time, as much as I loved the teacher that I had for it, I wouldn't say it was great training. Um, however, for me, because I wanted so much to do uh, on the athletic side of things and working in sport and working with teams, I thought it was important to learn that stuff. And then the day came that I took a continuing ed course with Corey Blickenstaff. Um, if you guys know him, he's a, a physio from Vancouver, Washington, and he is one of the most brilliant guys I've ever met. Uh, he does a podcast with Sandy Hilton called the Pain, Science, and Sensibility podcast, yeah. I believe it's called. Um, and Corey is like one of the humblest guys in the whole world, and he will he's a wealth of knowledge, and he'll give you anything to help you out. So um, I took his course, and it's all based on graded exposure and adaptive movements and stuff like that. And I like... I was shocked watching things in the course. And then when I started doing it with patients, I was like, this is brilliant because now I'm making patients do things that they didn't think they could actually do by just getting them to move differently. And then people were like leaving the treatment room who came in, who like their 
low back pain was bad and they couldn't touch their toes. And five minutes later, they're touching their toes and looking at me and going, how the fuck did you do that? Mm -hmm. and, and it's just by approaching things a bit differently. So yeah. I'd, I'd say Corey was the catalyst of, of getting me that interested in it. And then just doing a ton more research and things about exercise and doing rehab exercise and things like that. Um, and I was fortunate enough to work in a clinic where we have a gym downstairs and, oh, you nice. know, I, I have, a. Uh, used to have a lawyer that would refer patients to me. So I would quite often go and do 45 minutes of exercise with a patient and then do 45 minutes of treatment. Um, so, and a lot of it was kind of learning along the way and looking at these <laughs> patients and being like, oh, I gotta try this. But, but it's, I, I just think that's one of the funnest parts of, of what I do. I loved it as well. One of your your blogs that you were talking about, because I think sometimes, I think there's there's kind of two camps, isn't there? There's There's people like yourself that have come into this with an interest in athletics and sport mm -hmm. and, and exercise and have got that kind of background. And then there's others who who don't. And for them, I think it can be quite daunting maybe or just not knowing where to start when you start saying, you know, to bring in some therapeutic exercise, some graded exposure, some movements. And I love your blog post where you're saying, you know, we're not necessarily talking about giving clients prescribed exercises and sets and reps but tell them they can go for a walk tell them they can pick up the grandkids tell them they can dig in the garden whatever it is yeah. you know and and so I guess for you is that all about reframing what pain is for your clients is it is about explaining the 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 the, the safety actually of moving in some discomfort I wonder if you could just kind of explore that a bit that's the I, you just hit the nail on the head I think it's the safety aspect um, because all too often, I think patients are, they feel pain and then they're fearful that they're going to make it worse by going and working in the garden or doing whatever that thing is that they love doing. Mm. Um, and if you can show them that they're not damaged and that it's totally safe to go and do that stuff, maybe they can't go and do it for four hours like they're used to, but maybe they can go do it for an hour and then come in and have a cup of tea or a beer or whatever, and then go back out and do it for another hour. Um, but really showing them that safety is is the number one thing. And I had a, a great experience last week with um, somebody who has been dealing with chronic pain for 30 years, and it was my first appointment with them. And I basically went through, if you guys have seen, I assume you've seen um, the Explain Pain Supercharged book. Yeah. They talk about the dims and sims, and I'm talking yeah. to this person, and I said, so, all these things that you've been experiencing are the danger in me signals. We need to start creating the safety in me signals. And they looked at me and they went, that right there is exactly what I need to figure out. And once we started doing that and showing them that, that, that there are certain things that they're doing that are creating that safety signal and movement is one of the big things. I remember at the end of the treatment, I, I said, okay, I'm, I'll step out, come on out when you're ready. But I was like, there's nobody here after you, but how are you feeling right now? And the person looked up and said, I'm not, feeling any pain. And I said, well, why don't you just lay here for a few minutes and just enjoy that? There's nobody oh. after you, so take your time. And then they came out and looked at me and they went, I think I'm going to cry. And I was like, don't do that. Oh. I, I don't want I can't Wait, handle seeing women cry. <laughs> um, but a lot of that is, it's the messaging. And, and that's really, I think, what, what Created Exposure is. It's providing a different message uh, to somebody to show them that it's safe to do those things. That they and also do. we we are exposing them to what they are terribly afraid, afraid of, and in which they realize actually that pain is not dangerous because I can still do my meaningful activities through the pain, the threat level goes, 
and by consequence then the the pain the pain level probably the intensity the experience of it is going to change so it's and to pick up on that also i love that it's actually a reassurance it's, actually, it's within everybody's scope of practice because you don't have to you know, it's not just about doing it, doing very specific ex exercise and exposing them. Even to for them to go, um, they like to go for the swim, for example, and say, oh, I, you know, I cannot do that. I cannot do this type of strokes or whatever. Okay, just get yourself in the pool, just start. And, and you're actually assuring them that nothing worse is going to happen. And that reassurance is so much part of being a massage therapist and why also I think is very well within our scope of practice or indeed fits very well within our treatments is because we got that plenty of time to explain that, isn't it? Yeah, there's that there's that a lot of time while the person's on the table that you can have yeah. a great conversation. A brilliant for Therapeutic Alliance. That yeah. touch is brilliant for Therapeutic Alliance. And that's why the, and that's why I don't know if you find the same, but a clinic, I find that, you know, people might have been given exercises by the physios, great exercises. The physio tried to explain the context of the exercise and everything. But actually, they came to me because they didn't do the exercises, therefore the pain continued. Then we take them on in treatment, we give the same exercise. In fact, we reinforce the need to do, and they're much more compliant with our advice. But that is because it's the therapeutic alliance that we have established and we had the time to establish, the time to establish, that's for sure. And our, the physio in our country, especially NHS physio, they don't have the time, although they would love to, but they don't have the time. Jamie, are you familiar with Derek Griffin, um, uh, Irish physiotherapist? I, I think I've heard the name, but I, I can't say that I've looked at his stuff. No, no. So, so he he uh, is also um, a big advocate of, of exposure therapy or graded exposure. And um, he's actually done um, uh, he did a podcast episode nearly a year ago with the knowledge exchange uh podcast oh, cool. down uh, down in australia and um one of the bits that he talks about there is how well well fundamentally what graded exposure is is trying to demonstrate and i think <clears throat> it probably is important for the therapist to understand that when they go into it is that that hurt doesn't equal harm and so you can be feeling pain, but it doesn't mean that you're damaged in some way, which means that you can potentially move and not feel pain because actually there is no underlying damage. And, and so for me, you know, even that concept, I think, is something that massage therapists need to understand in order to then be able to continue exploring. Um, because if they don't understand it, then their clients have no hope in hell of yeah. understanding that and making use of it. But he also um, makes the point that the great exposure, like, like you say, you're, you're providing reassurance, you're, you're providing uh, time and space to explore movements that are otherwise scary. Mm. But the context in which those movements are explored also matters. And one of the points that he makes is that, that there's no point giving a whole bunch of exercises to someone that they can only do in clinic. Because yep. once they leave the clinic, if they're no longer in that clinical space where maybe you as the therapist are providing an element of security or the, the just, just, just something in the environment makes them feel safer. And then they go back home into an environment where they spent, you know, like your client, 30 years in pain. Yeah. 
we've got to be really smart about how we help them translate that that graded exposure, haven't we, back into an environment where they spend a majority of their time. Yeah. Well, what I I think one thing I really like is I've taken some courses with Greg Lehman, um, and who's a brilliant guy. Um, and he you live a little bit closer to him than we do. Yeah. <laughs> you, you live a little bit closer to him than we do. Otherwise, we'd be there as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's about a five or six hour flight from from where I live. So, but but he's come to the island a number of times, and I, you know, I've taken I think I've taken his course three times, and and hung out with him in San Diego. He's a brilliant guy, very and very willing to share. Very his clever. Knowledge. Very yeah. clever. Um, but one thing that I took from his one of his courses was like maybe maybe your patient's goal is just to be able to put a can of food in the cart, and if they're having an issue with say shoulder flexion, and that's limiting them to be able to put the can in the cupboard, maybe if you did some abduction and like rotated, they can still get the can in the cupboard, but they just use a different movement to get it there you're still showing them that you can still do the things that are important to you. Maybe we'll just adapt it a little bit until you can do it with just full shoulder flexion and get it there. Um, so that's not necessarily graded exposure, but it's it's explaining to them that there's a different way to do something and we can still have the same goal at the end of it. But sometimes though, I it, it depends the person you have in front of you because that is more symptom modification which some people will respond really well with, or we can do it better with some people. Some other people giving symptom modification is like telling them, oh, you must not uh, uh, feel the pain because the pain is danger. So that's where sometimes, uh, um, if uh, from my perspective, I would say, uh, I agree with that only if the outcome for the person, only if the priority for the person is to be able to pick up uh, that can from the second shelf. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, it's we are removing them, we are giving the message mm-hmm. that pain is something that we should avoid, we should run away from. I think, and I know, Becky, you've got a point you want to make, but I just thought I'd interject. Um, I think that's where a discussion that I like to have with people is there's a difference between discomfort and pain. And doing things with a bit of discomfort is fine. If you do it and you have this electrifying pain in your shoulder, then don't do that. But a little bit of discomfort's okay because that's that's showing that there isn't damage occurring and you'll be able to work through that. A bit of discomfort's fine. So I, I think that conversation of the difference between pain and discomfort when they're doing said activity is it can make the difference to the point that you're making and it's an important conversation to have. I think, yeah, I, I completely agree. And it, like I see things from both both sides, Anna, obviously. And I, get, I think it's just about how we, we, we talk about pain as a whole, isn't it? I guess that person that can't put the can of beans up on the shelf, it's, it's about figuring out why they can't you know is it just that we're avoiding pain in which case there needs to be some education around that maybe is it is it that you know that really is a difficult movement for them maybe there's there's some you know joint changes there that that are prohibiting that whatever but it just again what was glaringly obvious to me when you were talking about that jamie is it it, is this is about the client isn't it it's about understanding what their goal is like if like you say if I think, again, we're all too quick to go, 
oh, this person can't flex their shoulder very well, so I've got to improve that. But actually what matters to them is that they can do their functional tasks yeah. and they don't care if if they're perfectly flexing their shoulder to do that or whether they're cheating a little bit and they're using a little bit of abduction, a little bit of rotation. And I, I see it a lot. I wonder if you, you get this with your, your hockey team that you work with and stuff I see it quite a lot with runners I work a bit with runners and we're kind of obsessed with oh but if we could improve this run like you know a minute a mile faster and this person's just like I just want to go out on a Saturday morning and do park run you know like I'm not fast and we're we're kind of a bit too quick to put our aims on everybody rather than just listen to what they want to achieve I guess I don't know if you see that as well with your athletes um, I think with the, the athletes, the because they have specific, and I, and I don't get into like the biomechanics of things with them, um, but quite often, especially if we're going to tournaments and things like that, it's, the, you know, they're coming in, they just, they want to get, for lack of a better term, a leg flush after a game or yeah. after a practice and things like that. And, and you're kind of working, but there's, you know, the times where, you know, they've got some low back pain and, and they come in and I'll have that conversation with them and I'll have them do like, you know, uh, a child's pose or something like that and do it repeatedly so that they can start to flex more and, and that sort of stuff. And, and they always kind of have a surprised look on their face when they can do more of it after we go through those movements. Um, so I, th- I think it's a little bit different in those aspects because they might be getting ready for a game the next day that's a gold medal game. Um, so that's that's a very different specific goal as opposed to the person who's going out for a run Saturday mornings. Um, yeah. Both are equally as important to each patient to each client, um, but just very different. And maybe it's a more specific goal when the athlete's doing it, if that makes sense. I, th- I, th- I think it's, well, I think it speaks back to the, you've got to be able to, whatever type of graded exposure you're doing, you've got to be able to put it back into the environment in which the, the, yeah. the client needs to be able to move. And in, 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 that, scenario, in that scenario, and I think with any sport, it's, it's easier somehow because you know that they're going to perform in a particular way and and everyone is basically familiar with how an athlete moves for a given sport yeah broadly speaking whereas obviously things like if you're working with a non-sporting person their activities of daily living how they get about their house how their house is structured how they have to you know wash and dress and and put their beans in the cupboard it's all going to be very, very different and very, very specific to that individual and their circumstances. And I was just thinking that whether there's um, uh, uh, almost a role for, for massage therapists. So in the UK, uh, I, I don't know about Canada, but in the UK, um, a lot of massage therapists um, do mobile massage. So where they're going to a client's client's house. Um and, and some people, that is their entire business model. They don't have a, a premises, they, 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 they travel. Other people might use it when they're starting up initially and then they set themselves up in a clinic. But what, I, what was just going through my mind was, was massage therapists and physiotherapists do obviously have quite a lot of overlap when it comes to providing uh, rehabilitation in a clinic environment. But is there perhaps call for a larger overlap between massage therapists and occupational therapists as we call them in the uk who are focused on helping a client get back to doing their activities of daily living in their house and perhaps there is a there's a call for some of our clients where actually we should be visiting their environment and providing our rehabilitation skills and our graded exposure skills in their environment so that we've removed the the safety factor of the clinic 
but we're providing them the reassurance that they can do it even when we've left because the environments remain the same. That's brilliant. Sure. Yeah. Like, I think you just created a new practice for yourself right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I want you to write a blog post for me about it. No, I think that's brilliant because like, and I understand the scope of practice is different in different places, but that would be completely within our scope in British Columbia. Yeah, yeah, and, and I've honestly never thought of doing that. I think that's brilliant. That's, that's great. Yeah. Well, because for me, it just sort of, it seems to lead on from, you know, you practice presumably with your hockey team, you practice at their hockey facility as much as you do out of your clinic. Yeah. So it makes complete sense that you would have that they would have access to their facilities for what it is they're focused on their hockey uh, and and have you as well and and perhaps you know, perhaps there is the space for, for massage therapists generally to do that for their clients yeah um, totally because there's been many times coach, sorry there's many times when i was working with our local team that you know there was a year that i spent as the head trainer and medical director so there's lots of times that be standing on the bench at a practice with an injured player and be like go oh, go for a skate and come back and, and you're kind of watching their stride and being like, how did that feel? You try to change it a little bit. So you're working together with them just like you would be if it was somebody in their home. So yeah, I think that's brilliant, Matt. You should start a franchise. <laughs> I'll have a feeling on it and I'll join the crowd of, uh, of, of yeah. trademark Um I'm really interested, Jamie, if you, you think that um, massage itself can be considered a, a type of graded exposure. So obviously there's always the whole argument around whether massage should ever cause discomfort, how, you know, whether it should only ever be gentle massage. And I wonder if for you that's when we talk about graded exposure, is can that play a part in, I guess, de-threatening the pain? But yeah, I think it could, because um, definitely uh, when I have somebody who's who's come in with say an acute injury, I'm not going to go and throw my elbows in yeah. right away. But and I and I always have the conversation with them that you know pain is that protection mechanism, and we're trying to send safety signals. And if I go and dig my elbow in, we're sending a danger signal, and it's not going to make things better. But gradually over say a couple weeks, you can start digging in a little bit more when they're when they're feeling better and maybe you can do a bit of a deeper treatment if that's what you like to do. And if that's what the patient likes, then by all means, that's, that's a bit of a graded exposure as well. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? I always think it's quite interesting with those, those clients that have a very specific aggravating factor. So, you know, your, your lady who can't put a shop in a way because she can't reach her elbow up actually, or her shoulder up. Sorry. If, you know, she said, oh, it hurts every time I put it here, but it, for me, I think it kind of, if we get a bit of a recreation with that pain when I'm hands on with them, it's almost as though that's can help me explain the pain to them. So it's kind mm -hmm. of like, it's not just, you know, an impingement or something structurally going on in the joint. It, it It's you being protective of that area because you're getting that danger signal because I'm prodded around in there. So mm -hmm. although we don't want to obviously ever cause any more threat to that, signal um it, i just think it's a really interesting concept whether it can actually be a, a method of reducing the threat around pain yeah and i think you can use um some distraction to make that yes. happen as well and and i mean like talking to the patient while you're doing something to distract them away from what you're doing um when, as opposed to stamping on their foot while you're getting them to flex their shoulder yeah exactly <laughs> But I remember um, we use this as a case study quite often when uh, Eric and I teach our course and there was somebody um, 
four or five years ago now who I had never seen before, but had uh, a torn rotator cuff and had surgery on it and had to give up their career because their shoulder wasn't where they couldn't elevate their shoulder anymore. And this had been going on for two years. And I was like, and, and I start digging in a little bit deeper and the person's like, well, the surgeon told me that I couldn't go back to the job that I had because my shoulder would be more messed up. And the, and the other therapist I went to said, if I went back to my old job, then the surgery I just had is going to pale in comparison to the one that I needed. So for, for two years, this person wasn't be able to get, wasn't able to get past 90 degrees of abduction of the shoulder. And so I'm treating the person, I'm just holding their arm and I'm in my stool and I'm gradually just going into abduction and I'm just talking to them until finally they're, arms up by their head. And I was like, can you look at your arm? And they looked at it, they're like, how the fuck did you do that? I'm like, your shoulder's okay. <laughs> and they got up and like, they were like, could move their shoulder up to about 120. And they're like, how did, how did this happen? But it was just, I'm kind of doing it while I'm distracting them, talking to them until finally their shoulders in, into that position. So if you can use that distraction a little bit, you can try stopping on the foot. But, uh, <laughs> and I guess another, another benefit of, of being a massage therapist is if you, were, if you were with a physio, maybe you'd be thinking, you'd almost be a bit suspicious to it, wouldn't you? You'd be like, oh, they're holding my arm, they're going to try and move my shoulder. Whereas you can kind of come at it as a massage therapist of, we're just doing some massage and yeah, I'm chatting just... away and, and it's not unusual for me to have my hands on you in a certain area for five minutes. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, again, it's that time thing, isn't it? And I guess an expectation. And I think that's really cool. I, I think we've probably, we were all grinning then, as you were saying that. So <laughs> we've probably all had those moments where we go, oh, have you noticed where your arm is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things then, um, we're going to, I'm going to throw you in again at the deep end, I think a little bit on this one, Jamie. So one of the things that we like to do on the podcast is, um, is have a theory to practice kind of moment. Um, okay. uh, we like, um, to be able to provide um, uh, listeners with the with, with something that they could apply in clinic the next day, broadly speaking, because we like to talk concepts quite a lot, um, uh, but but something solid that people can use. Now, bearing in mind that most of the uh, of the UK is under one form or another of lockdown at the moment, yeah. uh, we're not actually expecting anyone to uh, to go straight out uh, and and try this tomorrow. So actually, you've got quite quite a lot of scope here, but. If you had from your experience then within sort of graded exposure, what, what sort of maybe two or three things would you say therapists could, could, could use immediately the next time that they were with, with a client? Well, I, I think probably the big one is just step one is rule out red flags. Because as soon as you rule out those red flags, you've got permission to move them. Yeah. And, and you've got to show them. That, and there's a great book called Permission to Move that talks a lot about this, um, which is uh, some physios out of Australia. I'm about halfway through it, but a lot about it is giving them that permission to move. So if we can rule out red flags, and which can be done by a conversation, it doesn't have to be a bunch of orthopedic testing. But the more that I think about it, orthopedic testing is just graded exposure. Because yeah. Yeah. Do an Apley's test. Okay. Do it again. Oh, look, you went farther. Okay. <laughs> you know, so rule out the red flags and then just have a conversation and educate people that they're safe to move and then just figure out different planes of movement to get them moving in. Um, because once you can figure out how to do that, um, and it's, I think, I think we try to make movement and exercise more complicated than it needs to be. Um, I think, I think there's, and I think that's part of the reason that Eric and I started teaching uh, about therapeutic exercises, because we're all too often thinking we have to refer to a physio or a personal trainer 
to go and do exercise. Well, you can do most of what you need right in your clinic room. So, um, sorry, I went off on a bit of a tangent there, but um, so <laughs> rule out the red flags and then have that conversation and educate the people that they're safe to move because, because there hasn't been major tissue damage that's happened. So there's no reason that they can't move. Um, and then start to educate about safety. Educating about safety is a big one, showing them that they're not going to re-injure the area, that you know they, they might experience a bit of discomfort, but discomfort's okay. As long as you're not recreating pain, then discomfort's okay. And then start to build goals with the patient around getting them back to being able to do whatever that fear of movement was. So if it's as simple as I can't touch my toes because my back hurts, um, like I said, I'll put them in quadruped and then go down into child's pose three or four times and then look at them when they're in the angle of child pose and their knees are up at their chest and be like, look, that's lumbar flexion. You're in lumbar flexion right now. So you're totally safe to go into lumbar flexion when you're standing. And then inevitably they usually get off the table and can get at least close to their toes. So just showing them that you're capable of doing that movement. You're safe to do that movement. You're not re-injuring the tissue and then build goals with them around what's important to them. Yeah, it takes that kind of, so I, I, <laughs> I use exactly that in clinic, um, getting people to do things like child pose on the couch um, or uh, maybe using their arms to take the weight of their upper body whilst moving into sort of forward flexion whilst they're standing and then slowly re removing that support. Um, and, and I had a point <laughs> and it's totally gone, um, but... Uh, I was going to say, because I, I love that, um, and I noticed um, Todd Hargrove has written some of, you've got some blogs from Todd Hargrove on your post, and he's got that lovely book of playing with movement, and that's all about that, isn't it? You know, changing the driver, getting them on the floor, just almost the way a, a toddler starts to to move again, um, and just, just playing around with that movement and, and putting them in those safe positions. And I think it's great. And then you kind of, you, you put it into context for them of kind of go, well, look, you know, you're, you're in that position that, that was so um, difficult for you. We've just changed a few things, but your body is capable of it and, and you can achieve it. And I've remembered my point now, um, which is, which is that, th yeah. And, and that, and, and that, exposure if you will helps move the conversation on from a focus on damage or hurt equals harm to a focus on capacity to actually potentially why you're 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 struggling with discomfort whilst you're doing a, a standing forward flexion particularly if you're picking something up may simply be because your your tissues are struggling with the capacity to handle the load you're not damaged you're not breaking it's a warning signal that's coming early in a sense your pain system is working because it is it is telling you that you need to do something about it before actually something goes wrong and that's great because when, then when you're talking about whatever goal they're trying to get back to you come up with a gradual plan that gets them to that goal um and it just when you were talking it reminded me of a, like a couple times in my career where people have come in and they're they, you know the same thing they can't touch their toes and yet they're sitting in a chair in front of you and you i kind of look at them like, you're in lumbar flexion right now <laughs> and then they kind of you know they look at you a little perplexed but you it's a simple way to show them hey you just came in here and sat down you just drove here so you're you're safe here yeah, you're yeah. Not is there um so 
so uh, lock, lockdown is <clears throat> we try not to mention it uh, i think that's the third time i've said the word uh, so far but on the basis that people are um uh, in the uk are not not currently able to see their clients in the same way as normal have you got any experience in translating some of the those five points that you've sort of touched on into the online kind of uh, space when working with clients obviously eliminating red flags may be more tricky but let's assume you're working with someone that you have, have pre-screened, as it were. You know, this is a client you saw before you, you saw them online. Yeah. Um, how how would you change any of that if if you would change any of that in the online kind of um, consultation space? Um, unfortunately for us, uh, when our lockdown hit, our college came out and said we were not allowed to see people online. Uh, they said it was out of our scope and we weren't allowed to do it. Um, however, I did, <laughs> I did have a conversation with somebody just from a different um, a group that I'm in. It was somebody down in the States that said they were having back pain. I said, ah, just, you know, you're not paying me for anything. Let's just jump on and, and have a chat. And, and honestly, I just approached it the same way. Because if you, you can have a conversation about red flags and figure out if there are any. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a bunch of orthopedic testing. I mean, when you look at red flags, there's, do you have a history of cancer? Yeah. And, and, you know, you're looking at history of cancer. If it was a year ago, then there's a concern. If it was 20 years ago, I'm not concerned. Uh, you know, a bunch of those things. Did you have a fall? Is there a possibility of a fracture? Okay. I just ruled out half the red flags right there. So you can, yeah. you can do that by a conversation easily enough. Um, and then, like, I had the person just do some yoga poses online. It was like, okay, how does that feel? Try doing more of that this week and then fire me an email next week and tell me if things are feeling better. And, and, and hopefully that, that sounds really reassuring to, to, to you guys listening as well, because, you know, we've, we've, there's been lots of discussion about what you can and can't do online and, and, and not, not from a scope of practice perspective more. I think people, therapists have been nervous about moving online because they've worried about the perceived value of the conversations that they have and the information they provide versus the hands-on stuff and I think, I think it's it's really raised a lot of concern that the value is in the hands not in the knowledge and the interaction with the client and i think based on what you just said there jamie you demonstrated really nicely that actually the value is in in in, in the brain in yeah. our brain and yeah. translating it to their brain and honestly, I think if that's if if you are allowed to do that in the UK, start doing it now because you're going to build a way bigger therapeutic alliance with those people. And then when your clinic does open back up, they're probably going to be chomping at the bit to get in and see you because yeah. you built that therapeutic alliance with them. So even even if like if you've got all the time in the world right now because it's a lockdown, just reach out and start having conversations with those people. Yeah, you're speaking our language, Jamie. You're speaking our language. We try. We absolutely. This is something that we have been very, very, very strong um, with all our members, with all our colleagues. That because we are allowed to, we're ensured as long as it's visual. So yep. has to be through a visual platform. We can do that. And for people exploring that they've never done it before, they're starting realizing actually what really counts. Is the encounter is me as a therapist and the person in front of me as the client that that that's that's where the value of our interaction is and it's been a revelation for some and for some it's a, it's a completely diff new 
business model as well because then you know we can continue that and we can use it in different Mm -hmm. uh, in different ways especially with following people up with exercises we know very well that it's so beneficial to see your therapist uh, um to 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 discuss progression or if need regression quite often so the, the, this is for us has been is changed there, there are some positives to take out uh, of covid for sure some post in fact i really hope that we're gonna start putting uh, we're gonna see putting the telehealth uh, in training into training syllabus because i think it's something important going forward something important yeah. talking about training i know jamie that you are involved uh, in uh, education you're involved into if you say what is the biggest thing or the the biggest topic or element that you would like to see introduced in your syllabus in your curriculum that is not at the moment what is the biggest thing that needs to change in your curriculum oh you're hoping in a big can of worms there uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a whole podcast in itself isn't it it's the whole podcast in itself uh, i well i think i think the number one thing is they need to get rid of a lot of the massage therapy myths that are out there. Um, you know, a lot of the things that we were taught in school, that's, you know, that massage increases circulation, that, you know, you need to do a postural assessment because that's ind- indicative of, of somebody's pain. And there's so many of those things as we went through. But, but honestly, I think we need to stop. We need to stop worrying about techniques so much. Um, I, I kind of joke once in a while where I'm like, everything I needed to know about massage therapy, I learned in the first two terms, because those were the, the, those first two terms for us were all the technique courses for the most part. So let's, let's leave those first two terms as technique courses and the rest of it, let's work on the so-called soft skills, which I, they shouldn't be called soft skills because communicating with people is, is hard and it's not a soft skill and it's way more important than anything we're doing with our hands. So let's let's focus on understanding pain analogies let's focus on communicating with people let's focus on allowing people to talk rather than thinking that we need to just rush them on the table right away let them let them talk the the patient i was talking about that was in pain for 30 years that was an hour-long appointment that was 35 minutes of conversation and 25 minutes of treatment and it was the first time that the person hadn't had pain that they could remember and so it wasn't a bunch of hands-on stuff and I'm not trying to toot my own hand, my own horn saying I did a great job or anything. It was more what they did, but it was the appointment was more than half of it was a conversation. Then maybe so, Jamie, we need to reframe reframe the term massage therapy, like we did in this country. I we think we should moving, call it manual therapy. So well, we moved we moved away from the term. Huh? massage therapy well yeah it was called clinical sports and remedial massage at least our qualification and we we discussed it at length and it was a difficult choice but it was the right one for the profession because by moving away especially in this country jamie moving away from massage as a term uh it, it moved us away from being identified by our interaction because as you said correctly it is not only what we do with our hands it's not only the massage so we have to move away and uh, we now 
call ourselves, we have a whole qualification called soft tissue therapy, which I, I strongly like because as part of soft tissue therapy, of course, I'm using massage, of course, I use other techniques. However, is the, the whole encounter that is the, the, the therapeutic uh, approach, not just what we do with our hands. So that, that's why I think maybe is something to be rediscussed. I agree. I, I think I wrote a blog post saying that we should switch from massage therapy to manual therapy. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. That, that was a couple of years ago. I think I wrote it. Well, I mean, it, it leads me back to another question that I, I'd, uh, I'd noted down for myself, um, going back to massage therapist development center, which is, <clears throat> excuse me, you, you, uh, ask, you posed a question um, to, to encourage people to sort of uh, learn more where you sort of say, um, do you want to improve and do you believe in, in, in advancing the industry? And I was going to ask you what you meant by that. I think, I think you probably covered a little bit of it initially when you explained the, the fact that the perception is, is, isn't great between the different levels and, 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 uh, and, and so the public perception is a bit um, uh, skewed at the moment. But in terms of advancing the industry, and it might speak a little bit into to Anna's qualification quite question as well, but what, what do you see as, do you, do you have a goal in mind for what that could look like or what, what are kind of the little steps, if not? Yeah, and I, and I think at least here, some of those things are starting to happen. And it, it, it needs to, we, we've had some discussions around this. I still think it needs to start at the college level um, because you're churning out X number of students per year that are still learning narratives that are 30 years old that research has gone way past and proven wrong, and yet that's still what they're getting taught. Um, that, that needs to change. Um, and since, since we can't influence what the colleges are doing, um, then we have to make the influence. And that's where like, you guys deserve a pat on the back for what you're doing, because what you're doing with this podcast is brilliant. Um, and it's, it's not until we get a larger mass of therapists that are trying to speak the same language, that are trying to make change, that change is going to occur. And so we have to do it with continuing education. Um, it's, it's when those students get out their first continuing education course, hopefully, will be something that points them towards being a more evidence-based practitioner as opposed to taking a new technique course that the descriptions are already outdated. Um, so I think we have to work collectively, in, and that's why I think it's great what you guys are doing and in interviewing so many massage therapists that are trying to make change until we start to collaborate and until we start to make the change and teach the change, that's how it's going to happen. And that really was my goal with the website at the start was to look at research and make change on those topics. And I mean, I've gotten some nasty emails over the years telling me how terrible a person I was for uh, some of the things that I wrote because it challenged people's identities because they identified as X type of therapist. And when you say something that, that goes against that, people get their back up. Um, but that's fine. We, those people need to get their back up. They, they need to get challenged. We all need to get challenged as therapists, but it's not until we're collaboratively making change and it's starting to happen. We're starting to see it. Um, in some of the Facebook groups and things like that. Eric and I talk about the first time we taught our course, there was people crying because we challenged them on their narrative. And now people are like, oh yeah, okay, well that makes sense. 
And so in a five-year span, that the change is starting to happen. Um, and hopefully it will continue to happen and hopefully we'll all get caught up. I know not all of us will, but um, so again, I think you guys deserve a pat on the back because you're, you're, you're part of that and you're part of that collaboration that's trying to make change. So uh, congratulations to you guys. And I, I love what you're doing. Keep it up. No, thank, thank, thank you very much. That means a lot, uh, funnily enough, because uh, we look up to, to, to you guys over in Canada because we kind of sit here and go, we've got a bit of catching up to do. Um, Bit, I mean, uh, we we haven't yet had anyone burst into tears on our course, which either means <clears throat> we're 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 still not teaching it right, um, or, <laughs> yeah, or or you know we're 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 talking to a, an echo chamber, which is also obviously yeah. the risk, which is why we need to we need to like you say expand and 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 just make sure the message is being generally broadcast. But um, there is actually. Um, uh, someone who uh, I know listens to our podcast, and I'm going to try and be not very specific uh, in case I don't want to share too much. But, but in one of the forums that we're part of, they they have spoken about particularly over the last nine months when um, lockdowns have pretty much figured the entire last nine months in the UK, um, and. Uh, so they were sort of questioning about their their self worth as a as a therapist because they were no longer able to practice and 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 then I suppose because they had more time on their hands they were starting to look at more continuing education at which point they started coming across people like ourselves and and others who were t preaching a bit more of an evidence based perspective which does seem to challenge exactly as you say people's identities yeah. and this is this is i guess where we need to be really careful that we're we're, we're very clear we're not challenging who you are <laughs> we're challenging the underlying narratives that that have been taught to you and i and you know i'm a hundred percent with you i think you know i'm it's got to change at, at the teaching level you know there's no yeah. point bashing themselves over the head with this stuff it, it's it's what they've been taught um yeah. We need to change what's being taught. But my point with this 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 uh, this person was that they they sort of then detailed how they caught, they reached out, they contacted a, 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 another well known evidence based therapist in the UK, um, and and has have then kind of come back around and have gone. You know what? I've been through a genuine crisis this last this last period this last year, and now I'm in a position where I've spoken to someone who can put what I do into a context that makes sense and actually I feel even more empowered as a result of my better understanding of what is or isn't going on under my hands and, and and honestly the, the post is fantastic um uh, how they're describing that journey and it, it for me it just struck a chord because it's so raw because it has literally happened in this last kind of six months mm -hmm. I'm listening to Vito, and she talks about when you know it happened to her and she spent three days staring at a wall yeah. when it was all falling down around her but to see it also happening kind of right now it's really powerful yeah that, that's great and i and i think to some degree we've all been through that like oh for sure I, you know like i remember taking those courses and i was like what you're, you mean they lied to me in college? What? <laughs> Which and nobody was intentionally lying or anything like that. But you, you walk out and you think I'm going to do this stuff. And I, I've quite often said I would wish I could go back ten years and apologize to all those patients mm -hmm. that I saw. <laughs> um, but you know, and it, and it's funny, you know, the story that you tell about the person who went through this, this kind of identity crisis. And the thing is, nobody's saying that your technique is bad. Yeah. Use those techniques. It's just that the explanation behind them. 
is wrong. Um, and one kind of story that I always tell is like when, when I was in college, I think it was term two, we had a myofascial release class where we learned how to do an occipital hold. And the teacher's telling us, you're releasing the fascia around the occiput and you're doing this and that. And then in term seven, we took a craniosacral class. And I, I should go back and apologize to that teacher because I was a dick in that class. <laughs> and it wasn't because I was like some forward thinking person. It's like, can you feel the pulse? And I'm like, no, I can't feel anything. And these other people are like, I can feel it. I was like, you're full of shit. You can't feel anything. <laughs> but they're sitting there and they're, they're going, you know, you're alt you're by doing this whole, you're altering the rhythm of the craniosacral fluid and bone sutures in the skull and stuff. And I'm like, okay. And then it was only like a year or two ago that I was like, wait a minute. They both showed me the exact same technique, but both have wildly different explanations behind it. And neither one was right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. Because, but the thing is, it's a, it's a great technique. It's a yeah. very relaxing it's technique. The it's the mechanisms that we need. It's the mechanism yeah. that we acquired, not the, the benefit or the person feels out of that experience. Yeah, well, it's very... You might have identified the source of Jamie's hate mail. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 a very effective technique it's just that you're holding a place that's a highly innervated area where the nervous system is highly innervated there um and that's really what we're doing so to those people that are out there that think that like we're trying to beat down on you or not keep doing those techniques you're great at those techniques your patients are coming to you because they love what you do just change the description behind it that's perfect. And see that as an evolution. Yeah. No, you're not, not being, you're, you're challenged to evolve. Yeah. Don't bring evolution yeah. into the discussion. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, <Lord. laughs> uh, fantastic. Well, um, I suppose, Becky, were you going to jump in? No. No, cool. I actually so, wasn't. <laughs> you, were, <laughs> you looked poised, guys. That's, that's why. Yeah. Um, Jamie, so what is next for you? You've obviously mentioned Eric a few times. I just want to clarify, that's Eric Purvis, is that right? Yes. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, so what, what have you got next? What's, what's, uh, what's 2021 looking like for Jamie? Uh, 2021 is looking a lot different for us because COVID gave us a kick in the crotch last year um, while we were supposed to be doing a bunch of live courses throughout British Columbia and we were supposed to go down to the States for the first time and then COVID ruined all that. Um, so we're actually, we're, we're both launching and going online more. Um, so I put together a course that's specifically on pain science and therapeutic exercise that has a bunch, talk a lot about graded exposure in it and show demonstrations of how to do graded exposure. So we'll be launching that in the next couple of weeks. Um, and then Eric launched his course a little while ago. He's got a membership coming up. Um, I started a membership last year, so I'm going to be doing another intake on the membership this year. And it's going to be all about basically bringing in some some guest speakers to instruct. Uh, so if the three of you would like to come in as guest speakers and, and talk to the membership, would love to, love to. to have you. Um, and basically what, what we wanna do is, is, like we're doing it separately, but um, for mine anyways, wanna have uh, people who are good at whatever it is they do come in and teach like a mini course um, and, and basically get more of the evidence-based practice out there. So let's start looking at research papers. Let's let's see how we can apply that research in our practice. So on a monthly basis, it'll be some new training of and, and group work where we can go, okay, um, you know, let's look at uh, Darlow's paper on communication and how words, the long-term effect of words. Uh, so let's see what the research says and then 
let's look at how we can in- implement that in practice this month and then the following month then another one so uh, we're both trying to build up uh, more courses and, and more online stuff so that we can hopefully reach out to some people in the UK as well as locally um, but it's all about everything that we've been talking about just trying to make change and, and trying to trying to make the groups bigger that are preaching evidence-based practice because then the trickle-down effect of how we're helping patients is going to be bigger. And where can people find about all of these? Do you have um, your website? Uh, Can you give us? Um, I don't have the link set up for the course yet, but I'll get it to you guys as soon as uh, the link is ready. Great, but it'll... we can put it in this podcast on the... Thank you. Thank you. Um, and then it'll be um, like launched to the email list on, on the blog. And so so I think the biggest thing is just go to the website and if you're interested, subscribe. And, um, and anybody out there that's an evidence-based practitioner, if you want to write some articles, we're happy to host them. The, like I've said, the, the bigger collaboration we have, the better. Um, if there's something that the three of you would like to write about, I'd love to have a post from you. Um, let, let's keep working together and let's build up so that we've got more more people doing good things. Absolutely. Fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, well, thank you. It's been a delight. It's, it's gone way over our normal podcast time. Uh, <laughs> and we could have gone on forever. We could have gone on forever. It really could have gone So, um, no, that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much. And, and we look forward to speaking to you very soon. I hope so. And you guys keep doing what you're doing because you're doing a great job and and you're making a difference. So keep it up, please. Thank you. Take care. And here we are at the end of another episode. Thank you for staying with us and for listening. I'd like to reinforce a statement that Jamie made that is my take-home message. Let's work on soft skills as they are way more important than what we do with our hands. If you enjoy our podcast and you like to support us, please hit the subscribe button, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. Thanks again, and see you next time. Bye now.